0: This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It features a conversation between Jennifer Terry, lecturer in American literature, and the novelist and author Jane Smiley. Jane Smiley is best known for her Pulitzer Prize winning novel, A Thousand Acres, but she has written many other works in numerous genres, ranging from a campus satire to young adult fiction about horse racing, to non-fiction studies of Charles Dickens and the physicist John Vincent Tatanasoff. This interview was recorded at the 2014 conference, Literary Dolls, The Female Textual Body from the 19th Century to Now. And so it focuses especially on issues to do with literary representations of women and the experience of female writers.
1: As Alistair says, we're we're delighted to have Jane here. Um... I wanted to also reiterate the range of writing that Jane has published, the many different genres. Um, But it seemed to me, when I I tried to kind of reflect over what I had read, and I haven't read all of your works, as I've already confessed, the range of experiences within that range of kinds of writing also seemed really interesting to me. Um, And maybe we'll come back to that, and the ways in which a a range of experiences are handled. I did want to kind of... um, throw one of your own comments back at you before you read, which was, I hope this is not a misquote, but that the job of the writer, the, the writer's job and the writer's ambition, is to develop a theory of how it feels to be alive. And that seemed to me one of the ways in which I, as a reader, have been very strongly drawn into your fiction. And uh, possibly we'll come back to that, about how your, your narratives might theorise how it feels to be alive, um, as I said, in in respect to a whole range of experiences. Uh, so I'm going to shut up and hand over to Jane, who I think is going to read from some new work, yes. um, and we'll pick up the discussion later, and hopefully you'll have lots of questions
0: as well. Um, I'm going to say one thing, and that is that uh, pr- appropriate to this conference, I did not bring along the best thing I've ever written, um, which is a short story called The Life of the Body, which is published was published in Antaeus, and is going to be in... Um, a Norton anthology of contemporary American short stories. So you might look at that. Um, It's very sad, so bring your Kleenexes with you. I have written a lot about bodies, and I'm gonna read a little piece from my new trilogy, uh, which now has a UK publisher as of yesterday, and um, it is called The Last Hundred Years. It starts in, in 1920, with the birth of a boy to a farm family in Iowa, and it ends in 2019. Of course, the last volume will be published in 2015, so it wanders into a little bit of science fiction. The boy who's born in 1920 is named Frank, and he marries this woman, whose name is Andy, and she is from Decorah, Iowa, which is an odd town. It's a, uh, that part of Iowa was settled by, you'll need to know this just because, um, that part of Iowa was settled by Norwegians, and for at least one and possibly two generations after settlement, as is true in this part of the Midwest, they spoke Norwegian among themselves and in the town. And so Andy has grown up um, speaking Norwegian and English at home. The structure of the last 100 years is that it spends a, about a chapter, exactly a chapter, on every year from 1920 to 2019. So my, my task was to weave, make the story, or the there's a lot of stories, but make the stories weave themselves into the years rather than weaving the years into the stories. And it was an interesting challenge, and I enjoyed doing it. But really, in the end, it was like getting on a train. I knew it was a self-constructed train, but I had to make the energy just go in order to keep the reader going. Anyway, this is 1965, and Andy is believed by her husband and her children and most other people to be a total airhead. She's, she's quite beautiful and fashionable. Um, she lives in New York, and I, I analyze her problems slightly differently than that, but I'm go- she gets involved with psychotherapy. She moves from a Freudian to another Freudian, and then to a Langian. Remember I.D. Lang? She moves, she moves on to one of those guys. And now she, this is her episode at her psychotherapist. Andy said, well, don't you think it's mysterious? It was three months since the murder. Lillian was still upset and Arthur seemed beside himself. I, I've never seen Arthur so, so, I don't know. "'Who was murdered again?' said Dr. Smith. "'A friend of theirs named Mary Meyer. "'She was shot in the head and in the heart, "'walking down the towpath in Georgetown "'in the middle of the day. "'Have you ever met this woman?' "'I don't think so, but it horrified me. "'I had nightmares about it, "'and we had to come home two days early. "'Andy was lying on the mat, staring at the ceiling. "'She didn't often have recourse to the mat, "'but Dr. Smith's facial expressions could be unpleasant.' His bushy. Oops, don't go away. His bushy eyebrows lowered over his eyes until they seemed to disappear. Sometimes he tapped the lead of his pencil on his teeth while she talked, which she found so distracting that she fell silent. What really horrified her was a thing that she was not comfortable telling that Lillian and Arthur seemed to be falling apart. The injustice of this disturbed her. She said, May I change the subject? There is only one subject. You know You know that Frank's office is in the Chrysler building, don't you, on 42nd Street? Dr. Smith said yes. I went to Bendel's to get a dress for a cocktail party at the Upjohn's next week. Frank said it had to be Dior or Chanel, but I hated the Chanel, and the Dior looked very girlish to me, though brown, brown is so dull. It was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He coughed as if losing patience. Anyway, as I came into the vestibule, but before I opened the outside door, I saw Frank pass with a woman on his arm. Rather a plain thing, I must say. I paused. I must have been surprised, but I knew it was Frank. He was wearing his gray Brooks Brothers overcoat that I picked up at the cleaners the day before, and he was smiling. I registered that right away. You did not recognize the woman? Never saw her before. Did you go out into the street? I did, I watched them when they turned the corner. I followed them down 52nd Street. Can you tell me their exact demeanor and posture? Andy's hip began to hurt, so she crossed her ankles. Dr. Smith would be taking note of this, she knew. She said, she looked upright and self-contained. Her elbows were at her sides and her head was straight. Her shoulders were straight. And your husband? First, he was holding her elbow. Then he put his arm across her shoulders. Was he leaning toward her? Yes. Dr. Smith wrote busily, then sniffed. Andy said, she didn't look like a prostitute. Is there any reason that she should look like a prostitute? Andy crossed her ankles the other way. This young man where he works, one of the sons, he asked me at a party last summer when we were staying at Southampton if I knew that Frank frequented prostitutes downtown. What did you say? I said yes. You haven't mentioned this to me before, Andy. Were you telling the truth? I didn't know it. It hadn't been as difficult as she thought it would be to tell about seeing them, the couple, Frank, and the woman he loved. She said, I did go up to Bonwitz and buy a dress, navy blue shantung with a matching coat. It was last season, but on sale. So, the sight of your husband and another woman who was rather doubtily attired motivated you in some way. Andy nodded. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Which of your physical assets do you feel that this new outfit makes the most of? Andy lifted her chin, almost unconsciously, then put her hand on her neck. Dr. Smith said, your neck, your chin, my waist, my legs and ankles. I'll put my hair up, of course. So you plan to accentuate your slenderness, your paleness in contrast to the dark color of the dress, your, let me say, androgynous qualities, as if to say to all once again that sexuality isn't your business. And so, your husband falling in love, if that is what it is, with the dowdy, but let's say womanly rival, makes perfect sense. Andy said, I suppose it does, from his point of view. She said this in a reasonable tone of voice, and was just about to say something else, when Dr. Smith was right there, nose to nose with her, and apparently in a rage, Andy recoiled. Dr. Smith exclaimed, Andrea Langdon! are you so flat and small that you have no reaction to this is there nothing inside you no moat of emotion or resistance no ego no identity no being you come here to me three days a week faithfully as far as i can discern you are a wraith floating through your own life not only with no affect but with no response i ask you if you drink you say yes i ask you if you ever get drunk You say, yes. I ask you if you embarrass yourself and you get drunk, and you say, no, you just doze off or go sit in a corner. Sometimes you say you laugh at nothing. That is the extent of your transgressions. (sniffs) I thought I was supposed to behave myself if I had too much. Frank says, your husband is cheating on you. He loves another woman, but your voice trembles only when you describe the murder of a stranger. She was JFK's mistress. (laughs) At least that's the rumor. Andy coughed, thinking of how many times Dr. Grossman had explained the concept of displacement to her. She leveled her voice and said, I don't think she loves him. She wasn't leaning toward him in any way. Her body language said that she was, Are you using my own terms to show me up? Now Dr. Smith seemed really angry. Andy slid to the right and put her left hand lightly on his arm to prevent him moving toward her. He said, I am yelling at you. I am berating you. How does that make you feel? I think you must be having a bad day. Do you think this has nothing to do with you? Andy stared at Dr. Smith and decided that he must have been a badly behaved child, which was possibly why he had become a psychiatrist. Then she said, Ragnarok. What is that, please? He sounded both surprised and contemptuous. The end of the world in Norsk. Gotterdammerung, the apocalypse? She nodded. He said, Please describe this to me. Andy he closed her eyes, remembering. It was still very clear. First, I thought the dogs would begin to howl, and then the wolves in the forests would gather in town and join them. The howling would get so loud that you could not hear, no matter how hard you listened, that the snakes were slithering out of the river. We lived on Winnesheek, <coughs> which was just south of the river. Anyway, the snakes were big as pythons, but they were cottonmouths, more poisonous than rattlesnakes, and they would slither through the front door and up the stairs. And first they would go into my parents' room and smother them and bite them all over, but you couldn't hear my parents' screams because of the howling. Then the snakes would wait in the hall for me to open my door. I could stay in my room for days, but eventually they would slither around me and bite me. They would be as cold as ice. Then the house would burn down. This was a true memory from when she was about seven. What would cause the house to burn down? I don't know. Andy shivered. Doctor Smith stared at her, then said, "Perhaps we are getting somewhere." Thank you. Um,
1: hopefully, we'll we'll hear hear some more reading a little later on. Um, and maybe people might want to come back and ask questions about that. Also, what strikes me though is that you've picked a passage which gives us a scene of the doctor reading, well, both Andy and the doctor reading women's bodies Mm -hmm. and reading costume, um, so that might give us a starting point, but also, obviously, the dynamic between the doctor kind of trying to provoke her. um, uh, You said that Andy is a character... Well, He's he decide- believed to be an airhead, which is interesting, <laughs> as he then says, is there nothing inside you? Um, I'm, I'm sure that's not the case, so I don't know if there's well, anything there. Well, to- he
0: eventually decides to demonstrate the proper use of her sexuality himself, okay. and as mm. happens so often um, with those kinds of therapists. But she's, she recovers. She she needs a good deal of prodding. I, You know, my analysis of her is that really she is kind of, from about the early 1950s, she is in a kind a state of panic, which is a, uh partly owing to the way the Cold War connects with her. these myths that she 's learned as a child about these Nordic myths about the end of the world um, and so what what I want is she she's the only character who lives from beginning to end. So what I wanted to do was have a woman that drove everybody bananas um, <laughs> But that they, but that you come to love in the end, and and people do come to love her in the end.
1: That's that's really interesting. I, I, obviously, this is new work, so I don't know the last hundred years. But with the sense of frustration with her as a figure, and at least the perception mm-hmm. of passivity, or the perception of calmness, or you know, not not the reaction that that might be expected, that does also remind me a little bit of the perception of. Ginny in Thousand Mm -hmm. Acres, Mm -hmm. so this sort of frustration with her apparent lack of response or apparent passivity and um, calmness and kind of um, the way she she tries to proceed through life that that enrages certainly her sister.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, when I decided I was going to do a rewrite King Lear in a way that I preferred, I had to choose Ginny or Rose. I mean, I had to choose Goneril or Regan. And uh, you cannot be have the angry one be the author or or the narrator it has to be the ambivalent one cuz the 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 reader cannot take the kind of anger that rose has um from beginning to end so, so jenny stylistically her discourse has to have that ambivalence so there has to be a reason for that and so mm-hmm. the reason for that has to be that she just has avoided Looking at any number of things, for whatever reason, partly temperament, but partly it's an older child thing. In, in my experience as a as a daughter, a mother, and a child, the firstborn girl really doesn't know what's going on. She thinks the parents really do know what they're doing. The second-born girl comes along and looks at the firstborn and the parents and says, "Wow, firstborn is an idiot." <laughs> and um She cannot see that the parents are crazy. You know, that's been my experience. So I had to choose Ginny. And then she had to be a certain, she had to just be fairly eloquent. So the thing I think she's able to do is use metaphor to characterize various moods that she, Mm. that she is, or not moods, but feelings that she has. I think that's her gift. But she, can't, she cannot act, things happen to her. If it were Rose, you know, she would have put them all to sleep and walked away, but it's not Rose, it's Ginny.
1: Because that, that A Thousand Acres has that sort of first person mm-hmm. throughout, um, unlike some of the other narratives. That yeah, that's move, very hard.
0: Yeah. That's, for me, that first person is the hardest point of view. Those of you who, uh, there might be one here or not, who's read Private Life, which is my most recent novel, and I originally wrote that in the first person and I, then I realized that Margaret, that character doesn't, also cannot have the self-knowledge. And maybe that is a characteristic of being a 19th century woman. She cannot have the self-knowledge that would allow there to be a first person narrative. And so I had to go to third person omniscient because I had to delve into her mind even when she wouldn't. And so that, so that was, I felt. I think I felt with Ginny, that she she was she could move toward self knowledge. Yeah. Um, um, whereas with other characters, I have felt that they could not. But.
1: That's really interesting. Um, the other thing that that sort of springs to mind, and I think this is the case with Private Lives as well as with um, the passage you've just read to us, is that look at family life or marriage in mm-hmm. the case here. And, um, I was really struck when he was talking, I read the blurb for private lives. I mean, life, life There's only one life, <laughs> um, and, um no, no
0: coward had many, but I only had yeah. one.
1: That, that notion of, um, <laughs> the mysteries within lives lived side by side, which although it was a, a commentary on that novel, seemed to me to speak to lots of the other fiction. So the interest in the family or in marriage mm-hmm. or sibling relationships lived very closely together, but that. Especially with a third-person narrative, you kind of moving between those perspectives in ways that set them side by side rather than um, always meeting. I don't know how you would respond to
0: that. You know, when you're writing a novel, your characters always have to go somewhere, and so if if they already are, you know, connecting with one another, they have nowhere to go. They so they can't be there already they can go they can end up there but they can't be there already so if you're going to talk about um, married life or family life in an interesting way it has to be about the failure of connection that either ultimately succeeds or ultimately fails you know in some books it's succeeded in some books it's failed and it 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 depends on the the plot itself every novel is an imperfect object. If it's full, then it's hard to comprehend, and so it can't be perfect. And if it's easy to comprehend and is perfect, then it's small. And so that that you have this constant dilemma of how full am I going to make this? How much can I jam-pack um, into this item in order to give the reader this feeling of richness? And so in a great novel the sentences come and go and you want to pay attention to them and yet the the suspense makes you want to move on and not and just leave that wonderful sentence behind and go on in search of the next wonderful sentence. And so a, a great novel is really incomprehensible and that's why we love them and keep seeking after them.
1: I know you've talked about how you're a Dickens fan and
0: um I moved on though. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> I was just thinking when you were sort of thinking about um, expansiveness or range and then yes. intensity or a, a kind of smaller, narrower channel. And as Alistair said at the start, Jane's written all kinds of work, um, uh, historical novels, campus novel, comedy, detective mm-hmm. or mystery. Um, and you mentioned that you were turning to sci-fi too. Um.
0: Well, like for four years. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, Is your sense of of is that just sort of trying out different genres to do different things? Is it a challenge?
0: Well, I have to to say, Um, you know, everybody's going to laugh at this, but when I was in high school, when I was in junior high, I went to school where our our reading program was quite uh, extensive, and we read Shakespeare every year, starting in seventh grade, and um, I think we started with Twelfth Night, and then we read Lear senior year and Hamlet junior year, and I can't remember. We were reading in junior year, I remember reading um, Dostoevsky, and you can imagine this in eighth grade, we were reading a book about Scandinavian immigrants to North Dakota, in which the woman goes mad and the husband freezes to death. You know, why would you give this to an eighth grader? And we, But in ninth grade, or maybe that was ninth grade, but in ninth grade, we also read David Copperfield, which I really loved after detesting Oliver Twist and detesting um, great expectations. So, because these were my models and because I had to work so hard, it was almost a case of having to translate the text when we were reading Oliver Twist for me. I was the one in the class who raised her hand and said, why wouldn't he give him some more porridge? <laughs> and the teacher basically said, are you an idiot that you don't understand? this?" well, yeah, I, I don't understand why. Nobody's ever not given me seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, this mo- there was that moment of sort of having to translate, but I remember thinking when I first wanted to write books, well, Shakespeare wrote tragedy, comedy, romance, why can't I? And that's the, that's the effect of living out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and just reading books and learning about them and sort of translating them in your own mind. And you think, well, that other guy, what's his name? Uh, it starts with an S. He did it, so why wouldn't I be able to do it? And um, nobody ever said no. And so it never even occurred to me. I remember I got to graduate school, and I was surrounded by people who doubted themselves. And I thought, what are they talking about? But, you know, I also think this is, I always, I always say I'm going to write a book called The Blessings of ADD. An ADD person, when I was in eighth grade, my teacher wrote on my report card, she only does what she wants. Well, that's one of the blessings of ADD. You only do what you want. And so for me to live in the middle of nowhere and to be ADD and only do what I wanted, that was, that was the blessing of my life, really.
1: Um, I know when we were chatting just before the start of this session, um, and lots, lots of us today have been to panels that look at that are Focused on bodies in various ways, images mm-hmm. of bodies, reinvented bodies, controlled bodies, objectified bodies, bodies in pain—all um, all, all kinds of really interesting angles have come up. And you said this prompted you to think of a childbirth scene in in a text. Oh, in private you, uh, life. Yeah. 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 Do, do you want to speak about that, or um, was that well, was that just for me?
0: <laughs> no, it was. I can speak about that. Um, private life is loosely based on a. One, on my grandfather's older sister. My grandfather was the youngest of ten and his, one of his older sisters married um, a notorious crackpot physicist who is still known on the internet as a notorious crackpot physicist named Thomas Jefferson Jackson C. He was the last Newtonian of the 20th century and that's what private life is about. It's about a, this woman who comes who is a normal, plain, nice person from St. Louis or from central Missouri who gradually over the co- course of many years, comes to understand that her husband is an absolute nut job. And not only that, but destructive in his way. And um, one of the things that's true in our family is that blood that blood problem o negative. And so she did lose a child. She only had one and she lost, she had a miscarriage apparently and then she, uh, she lost she, another one that she carried to term. So this is a long scene in the book where she has the pregnancy and the birth of the child and then, and then is there for the three weeks that it takes for the child to die. Because mm-hmm. I really wanted to get at the horror of life in the 19th century, not and, and I think a lot of 19th century authors do that, but they don't get to the feel of it. And I don't think it's because necessarily they didn't want to. I think in, in part it's because it was so routine for brothers and sisters and mothers to die mm-hmm. that, um, well, why think about it? You know, we need to move on. So, um, so that's, a, that's an example. That's my rewriting of 19th century literature.
1: And even in something like um, The All True Travels, yes. The Adventures of, of Liddy Newton, then there's a very tall protagonist, if we're thinking about bodies, <laughs> and both you and I are quite tall, mm-hmm. um, but, but Liddy, too, uh, her, is waiting for a pregnancy, and then when that pregnancy ends, it's, you know, she's been entirely caught up in other things, actually. She doesn't even realize she's yeah. pregnant,
0: really. she And then someone tells her that she's yeah. had a miscarriage. But when I was researching Liddy Newton, I did come across a real, uh, uh, maybe a paragraph in one of my sources about a 19th century woman in Kansas that somebody saw on a horse, a very long, very tall woman with long hair and kind of a plain face, and I said, oh, that's my girl.
1: So that was a prompt to kind of,
0: for the whole novel, or just... No, just for how to portray the main character. I think, I like to portray plain women because they have more experiences, more various experiences. You said you were going to talk about the children's books, and the, the girl in the children's books is observant. That's her main characteristic, and, and I would say that is a characteristic of mine. I was thinking the other day about all the famous people I've met over the years like Martin Amos. And if you said to Martin Amos, do you remember meeting Jane Smiley? He would say no. (laughs) But I I remember meeting him because I'm the tall girl in the back of the room with my eyes open. So I just think that's the way I want Abby to be.
1: That's really interesting. I wasn't
0: blonde. You know, once you're (laughs) blonde, people look at you. When you're not blonde, they don't. You know, I remember I, my usual experience when I had dark hair, I'd go into a gas station and pump the gas, and the attendant walking by would say, Five dollars to you, buddy. And I'd say, Okay, thank you. He'd say, oh, I'm sorry, Bam. I didn't, you know. But um, when I was blonde, then people noticed me, but they assumed that I didn't know left from right. And it was distinctly true. You know, I even had that experience. I drove to the racetrack, and I got, went in the wrong door. And the guy said to me, OK, you're going to go out the gate, and you're going to turn left. And you're going to go down about 100 yards, and then you're going to turn left again. And I called a friend of mine, and I said, I, I, I'm blonde now. And she said, have you had that experience Yes, And I said, yes, first day, first day out. And I was treated like an idiot.
1: sounds like a classic case of mansplaining <laughs> <laughs> uh, that um uh, almost mistakenness or the, the the kind of misrecognition of of gender in that that anecdote. I wonder if that could kind of by slight slight deviation lead us into um. Well, one of the panels I went to earlier uh, had a wonderful paper on sport and uh, women academics who engage in athletic activities, mm-hmm. as, as the speaker termed it, um, both in the 19th century and um, in the 20th century. And all kinds of interesting discourses about, um, you know, I you see this on the news in the UK quite recently about trying to get more girls and women to participate in sport, but also to get girls to stay in sport mm-hmm. at the moment when they usually drop out. and Anxiety is around it, its unfeminine nature and so on. I wonder if this somehow in a roundabout way gets us around to horse riding because oh, yeah. lots of the young adult fiction is centered around mm-hmm. horse riding. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to speak a little bit about your writing in that.
0: So. Well, I was, I was a reader of those books. So when I, at some point, an editor said to me, um, there are no real horse books anymore, at least not in the States. In England there are. And I said, oh, I can do that. And so what I wanted to do was to talk about a particular time in the history of horse training that took place around the neighborhood that I live in where the idea went from not forcing the horse to do what you think it ought to be doing, and a sort of carrot and stick idea, but in observing the horses in, as a group and seeing what they, how they were communicating and what they were communicating with one another and using, the body, using human body language to elicit cooperation from the horse or from horses in the same way that horses use body language to elicit cooperation from one another. They aren't very hierarchical, but they do have a group and they do want to coordinate their activities. And usually there's a mare in charge and um, and the stallion is a kind of lookout guy, as well as a breeder. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about this transformation from one way of looking at animals or horses to another way of looking at horses. <laughs> horses are quite individual, and they respond in a very individual way to what, they're, what is demanded of them. They don't have to love you like dogs do. Um, they can just ignore you, so they have a whole range of responses to you. But if they want to cooperate with you and take care of you, they will. And so there, I, I wanted to talk about that.
1: Yeah, I've been sort of thinking about women's, the, the, the sort of interior life of women in the novels. But of course, we also get the interior life of horses. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> something else to spring to mind. Um, uh, when I asked Emma why in particular Jane Smiley, although obviously great to have, Jane Smiley here, what in particular had kind of been her starting point in wanting you to, to come today and um, close the conference and most of Emma's answer actually linked to the idea of um, not just that idea of any reader being free to interpret a text as they wish or as they find themselves doing but that within your narrative you give the reader a certain kind of freedom in that there's a, there's a lack of overt authorial direction mm. on certain issues mm. or sensitive um, experiences and, and, and um, difficult depictions that, that come up in some of the texts but there's a kind of lack of editorializing um, there's also there's not irresponsibility but there's this kind of stepping back and giving the characters mm. and the reader there's a generous space there for them um, and I didn't know whether you would see that in your own work um, it was an intriguing answer for me at least uh, and one other thing I've thought of that we might want to pick up on, and I know other people will have questions, more questions, but that idea of uh, how women may have revisited earlier texts is obviously something that comes up Mm -hmm. through the King Lear in A Thousand Acres, but also in all kinds of other ways in in your other work. Um, So any thoughts on that sense of the freedom for the reader to find their own way um, with some of those lived experiences that get depicted in the novels, um, but also... If you're revisiting a text, that can be um, uh, can it be a limitation as as well as a uh, as a freedom?
0: Um. Well, <clears throat> for me, the ca- it is the characters. When the characters take start being alive, then they too are free. And I cannot I cannot stop them from being free without killing the novel, um, without killing the forward energy of the novel. So. The most I can do is kind of shape them, you know, maybe by pointing them in some direction or another. But I have so many, so often had this experience of not expecting a certain character to come into the novel, uh, not having planned for that one, and you know, he or she shows up, and the course of the novel shape shapes itself or changes. And I think I like to think of myself as one of those people that just thinks up stuff, Who, who's not, I certainly was not overly directive with my children, just taking, making the most of every minute, sort of innovative, and I'll give example in private life, I knew I was going to write this book about this marriage, and I knew a lot about it, and I knew some, but the Thoroughbred Retirement Society called me up and asked me if I would donate being a character in, in the book for auction. And I had done this before, and the minor character had sold for uh, $10,000. So the next, thing, the, tra- the next time, when they did it the next time, um, the minor character sold for $25,000. And the two bidders were a guy named Edward P. Evans and Peter uh, krizenko And Peter krizenko won. Well, Peter krizenko was Russian. So I called him up, I said, he's actually Ukrainian, but I called him up and I said, okay, what do you want to be in this novel? And he said, I want to be an adventurer. I want to um, have made and lost many fortunes. I said, fine, I can do that. And he began to take over. And so I enjoyed that part a lot because he brought this other world into this small world of Missouri and... And California, he brought this Russianness. So I gave him a trip on the newly completed Trans-Siberian railway. So I like all my characters to do unexpected things, because people do unexpected things, and then and then you have many rewrites in order to go back and make their unexpected things logical. But you don't have to. Um, all you have to do is make them logical. You don't have to dictate how the reader going to mm-hmm. should how the reader should respond mm-hmm. to them. I was asked to write an essay uh, about my generation of w- women writers. you know what it what it means to be part of my generation of women writers. My generation of women writers is more interesting than you think. And I'm not talking about 25 year generation, I'm talking about a 6 six year generation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I, I I didn't know what I was gonna write about and then this came to me, the idea of going to college and having my own record player and lying in bed and listening to records playing over and over and over again. And so I went started going to college in 1967. I graduated in 1971. I was six foot one. Really, the only thing I wanted was a basketball player. Um, And I eventually found him. And he was a Marxist basketball player from Wyoming um, who was writing his his thesis on how Pepin the Short proves that um, power comes from the barrel of a gun. (laughs) So they didn't do that in St. Louis, so he was really interesting. I'll just read about two pages. I learned the same lesson from Tom Rush and Joni Mitchell, both of whom sang Mitchell's song, Urge for Going. I was already a fan of Tom Rush before the Circle game came out, also in November 1968. He sang, I had a girl in summertime with summer-colored skin and not another man in town my darling's heart could win. And when the leaves came trembling down and bully winds did rub their faces in the snow, she got the urge for going, and I had to let her go. She goes. He can't seem to do anything about it, nor can he seem to make up his own mind to leave. Six months later, when Mitchell put out her version of the song on clouds, the sexes were reversed. He was the one to leave. She was the one to pull the blankets to her chin in despair. My favorite Tom Rush song, and one of my favorites of all songs of all time, was No Regrets which reinforces the sense of a, of the man being passively abandoned by the woman. No regrets, no tears, goodbye, don't want you back, we'd only cry again, say goodbye again. Rush also discovered covered a Tom Paxson song I knew from high school, The Last Thing on My Mind. Are you going away with no word of farewell, where there be not a trace left behind? In these songs, relationships come and go, the girls have agency, Both sexes are equally fluid, and both sexes have similar feelings. The singers were my peers, rather like older brothers and sisters. I paid attention to their experience. Uh, Then I talk a little bit about Joni Mitchell's cover of, uh, or Joni Mitchell's song about her experience with Leonard Cohen, which transforms itself from um, a song about desire to a song about identification, you know, of herself with him as a professional musician. Um, The late 60s and early 70s were, I think, a unique time to be in college. There were plenty of girls in my dorm who were Vassar girls with traditional aspirations. Find a promising youth from a good family and get married, but they were no longer the norm. My roommate wanted to be a playwright, I wanted to be a novelist, the girl down the hall wanted to be a doctor, as did one of the girls who had a car and drove me to my weekends at Yale. One girl planned to be an accountant, another a physicist, another to go into publishing. The girl who stood behind me in line at orientation turned out to be Meryl Streep. She never told me her ambitions, but they quickly became evident. The boys I knew were less less definite, I think in part because they were middle-class kids disoriented at finding themselves at Yale in the bastion of privilege and luxury, and the draft was hanging over them, sapping their attention, sapping their ambition. Was not only that we girls wanted to do things, it was all that also that there were now places to be filled, slots in law schools and medical schools and graduate schools. I don't remember any of us discussing how hard it would be to attain our goals or th- talking about the forces arrayed against us, much less any inherent mental or intellectual deficits we might have that would prevent us. Much later, I talked about this with a friend who was born in 1941 and graduated from UC Berkeley in 1962. She and her boyfriend and later her husband acted in student productions, and apparently they were a sensation, beautiful, talented, charismatic. But all anyone said was that they should get married, never that she should strike out on her own and make her own career. Such a thing wasn't thought of, she told me. And there really was this break between the girls that were born in the early 40s and the girls that were born starting about 1946. You know, I think I would define Francine Prose as like the, the pivotal figure. And it just never occurred to us and nobody ever said to us no can do. And then they started telling, you know, for whatever the reason there was, you know, it went back to being the old way, sort of. The other thing that's a constant Um, mystery to me is, okay, here's Martin Amos and Julian Barnes and all their friends, but where are the women? Where are the women of that generation? Why didn't they write any novels? You know, in my, the women, American women, there's me, there's Amy Tan, there's Rebecca Goldstein, you know, there's Francine Prose, there's Jamaica Kincaid, you know, and we've felt this freedom, So what happened? Why didn't the, why didn't the, you tell me, why didn't the English women feel this freedom? Weren't they going, they were going to college, right? It's, it's, it's been a mystery that I've wondered about for
1: years. I wonder if one smaller difference would be also the MFA program in the States Mm -hmm. and the sort of difference in terms of, you know, going into writing.
0: Well, I think that is a difference. Um, When I, I got my MFA in the early 70s and my very best experience in the mfa was i was sitting next to my best friend who is exactly a foot shorter than i am and we were quite a an interesting pair and we were listening to some male writer who had come to give a reading and he was reading it his elbows on the table and he was reading a very sad story and i had passed her a new story that i had written and she was very carefully reading it in her lap and then you know so nobody would hear And he came to a particularly sad part of the story he was reading, and she burst out laughing because she came to a part of my story. And I thought, yes, we've succeeded. (laughs) Well, she decided she didn't want to be a writer, and she wanted to be an editor. So she became my editor. So what I tell students now is do not attempt to please your creative writing teachers Attempt to please your favorite fellow students because they're your generation. They're, they're, those are the ones that are going to move forward into the literary world. So excuse me, she got a job as an assistant editor and you know, a couple of years later, she was able to buy my book and we just went on together for three years or three books. I mean, and that's all you need is that little wedge, the little thin end of the wedge.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Jane. Um, mm-hmm. at the end of a, a very rich, productive day. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. For more podcasts or to give your feedback on the podcast you have just listened to, visit readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com forward slash podcasts.